I, uh, who funded, who I funded this? Say, who funded this? I have to say, I almost brought the same one. Really? I didn't, I it's haven't seen this paper. one. It's a great paper. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by Snooker. Snooker. What? Snooker. It's what a, is it? It's a chocolate is it, peanut butter it, bar, I think. No, that's a is Snooker. Is it pool? What? No, no. It's this is a pool-related game with a bigger table and you try to snooker your opponent? I don't get it. <laughs> anyway, I am Matt Fox from the... Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health. I am here in London, but Dante and Chris Gill are there in Boston. They are from the Department of Global Health. Hello. Hey, Matt. So uh, a story for you guys. So I got up this morning to go to work and I went outside and there were helicopters flying around in the sky above us. And I had no idea what it was and it actually didn't even occur to me to think too much about what it was. And then later on the day, somebody sent me a text from the U.S. asking about all the craziness going on here in the U.K. And I had no idea what was going on. I had to look it up only to find out I did not realize that we live a couple blocks from where Julian Assange was oh, hiding really? out. Oh, really? Wow. Yes. Wow. And so when they kicked him out this morning and arrested him, I apparently was was right in the neighborhood. Oh, wow. It's, yeah. It strikes me in hindsight that Julian Assange's threat to sue the Ecuadorian government may not have been a strategically wise <laughs> yeah, move. That was maybe, too smart. Maybe not a good idea, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, uh, all that is to say, if you're looking for Julian Assange, you will not find him on the Population Health Exchange website. So uh, instead, you can find things there that you will find uh, public health programs and tools at www.podpodfleek.com. We should put our podcasts on WikiLeaks. Oh, please. You think people would actually look for them there? We might get indicted. Well, a lot of people apparently listen. Great idea. All right. Now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to look at use of brexanolone injection in postpartum depression. In the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive segment, we'll talk about statistical pitfalls in personalized medicine. And then uh, in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we'll talk about some of the things that make us laugh out loud or Don will enlighten us on what music cheese likes or something like that. So let's get into segment one. So we're going to talk about an article that looked at brexanolone injection for postpartum depression. It was published in The Lancet, and the study was titled Brexanolone Injection in Postpartum Depression, Two Multicenter, Double-Blind, Randomized, Placebo-Controlled Phase 3 Trials. Boy, they got all the buzzwords into the title there. Uh, It's from the Department of, of Psychiatry and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill by lead author Samantha Meltzer, Brody, and colleagues. So this wasn't exactly a new study, although it was pretty close to new. It was from 2018, which is why we picked it up. Uh, I'll give you some of the headlines on this one, which I thought were pretty interesting. So uh, USA Today says, new postpartum depression drug has big drawbacks. MSN says there's finally a drug for postpartum depression. Too bad it's $34,000. Of course. Uh, yeah. For one Yahoo course. New, for one course. Yahoo News says FDA approves first drug to treat postpartum depression. And then Business Insider says regulators just approved a new depression drug with potential to be a game changer. I thought it was interesting. So I only picked one that that 
picked up on the $34,000, but that was quite a theme in the, uh, the headlines that I saw. Don, can you, can you give us the rundown on this study? Sure, Matt. So postpartum depression is a lot worse than I had thought. It's a lot more common, and when it occurs, it tends to be pretty severe with some pretty dire consequences. So this is, this is really a serious problem. There are some figures that indicate that up to 11% of new mothers suffer from some form of postpartum depression, of which 40 to 80% is either moderate to severe. And there's all sorts of really bad complications that go along with it, like suicide or loss of um, impaired mother-infant attachment, and infant, even infant malnutrition during the first year of life. So it's, it's really a serious problem. The off-the-shelf antidepressants don't work consistently for this, and if they do work, they tend to work kind of late. So, you know, it can take up to six weeks for those drugs to kick in. So these investigators sort of extended information that they collected in human and animal models, which suggests that this brexanolone, um, which is a naturally occurring hormone, it's a form of progesterone, and... Brexanolone is the is the is the trade name, but the generic name is allopregnanolone, which is a neuroactive metabolite of progesterone, and and they've measured it in humans and in in, in rats, and they found that um, the levels go up during pregnancy and decrease a lot and very rapidly after childbirth. So whereas the prior studies looking at sort of generic antidepressants, which have a mechanism of action that's a little mysterious. These investigators took an observation that they saw in the laboratory and sort of exploited that to, to try to um, try to find a therapy that, that would actually work. So, I mean, it makes good biological sense. So they had done a previous study, which was a phase two study with a limited number of women. There are 21 women, and they found a difference in terms of um, something called the Hamilton depression score. And that's a pretty standard way of measuring depression. Um, and in that phase two study, with only 21 women, you know, it wasn't very, it wasn't very powerful, but there, the, the, the data were tantalizing enough so that they decided that they would do a bigger study. So as Matt said, this is a larger study. It's actually two multicenter, double-blind, randomized controlled trials, 30 clinical research centers and psychiatric units in the United States. They did two studies. One was low and high dose, and the second study was only high dose. And it wasn't really clear to me why they sort of disaggregated it into these two. But in the end, they basically... I struggle with that too, yeah. In the end, they basically put all those data together and also combined them with the data from their phase two studies so they had had more power. And they had a greater ability to sort of disaggregate the data and look at it in in a more detailed way. So this was industry funded. So the organization that makes this particular uh, medication funded this this study. I think it's always important to know that. They recruited women, either self-recruited or referred from their personal physicians, or they also put advertising out on the web and they attracted women through, through the web. And the screening criteria was that you had to be less than six months postpartum, you had to be feeling depressed, and you had to be over 18 years of age. And they enrolled ambulatory females between 18 and 45 years of age who were not breastfeeding or would agree to stop breastfeeding while they got the infusion. Which was only 60 hours long, so it's only like right. three days, basically. Right, right. But that's a long time to get an infusion. Right. Uh, it's quite right. a long time, it seemed yeah. to me. And especially if you're not breastfeeding during that period of time, immediately after you've delivered, I mean, that can be, that can be difficult for both mother and, and, and child. Women had to have a negative pregnancy test prior to the drug use and use birth controls afterwards. The major depressive episode could have occurred no earlier than the third trimester and no later than four weeks postpartum. And they had to have a Hamilton depression score of 
greater than 26. And did you guys pick up what the what the range is on that? I don't know. They, what the, I didn't, but they specifically say in the discussion that, that this is moderate to severe. Moderate to severe depression. So they yeah. had to have sort of objectively measured moderately severe depression to get into this study. And they were, I, I think we could get into whether it's objectively. Yeah, right, right. Somewhat Fair subject. Point. I actually don't know. Fair but, point. But yeah. as objective as, as these kinds of measurements can be made. It is, it is the gold standard is, at the moment. Right. And the women had to be willing to take no other depression drugs until after the 72-hour assessment. They could be on psychotropic drugs, but it had to be a stable dose for 14 days. There were a number of exclusion criteria, including renal failure, hepatic failure, anemia, allergy to the, to the medication, active psychosis or history of schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or schizoaffective disorder, prior attempted suicide during the current episode of postpartum depression, history of alcohol or drug abuse in the prior 12 months, and electroconvulsive therapy during this episode. So they, so they had three groups. They had a high dose, a low dose, and a placebo. All staff were masked. No unmasking occurred during the course of the follow-up, which the protocol allowed for for a medical emergency, but none occurred. And the intervention was a single continuous infusion of the medication for 60 hours, and then another 12 hours where they would stay in the unit and be evaluated after 12 hours. And that was sort of where, so, so, where, where so, the so outcome was observed. Just, just so I understand. So what is that like? I mean, is that literally being in hospital for 60 hours or yes. to get this injection? Or is this... It's, okay, a, it's so a continuous infusion. So you have an IV yeah. line dripping into your into your, into okay, your arm. So you'd be hospitalized for this? You would be. Yeah. Okay. They also had follow-up on day seven and day 30, and they had no follow-up beyond that. The outcome was change from baseline in this Hamilton rating score for depression. There was an on-site rater who, uh, who uh, could decide to accept or reject the quality control central rater score if the two scores were different. So, so the person who actually did the assessment was blinded to... What, what group the particular woman was in and recorded the evaluation, the Hamilton evaluation. And that recorded evaluation for quality control purposes could be evaluated by an outside rater if there was some question. The on-site rater could decide to accept or reject that sort of secondary assessment of the score that they obtained, which, as I said, was observed through the videotaping of how that was applied. Um, they used a, a, a bunch of other scales for secondary outcomes, but I don't think it's important to go into that. There were 100 and 120 patients in study one and study two, and the evaluation was an intention-to-treat analysis. They had a model, which they included the center of the 30 centers, the treatment. Statistical model, you mean? Statistical model, yeah. The centers, the treatment arm, the baseline antidepressant use, and the baseline HAMD score and the assessment time point. So they, for both studies, screened 375 women. 138 were randomized into study one. 25 or 18% of those discontinued because of loss to follow-up. They chose not to sign the consent form or for reasons that weren't stated by the authors, they did not receive the infusion. So, you know, approximately an 80% proper follow-up. In the second study, there were 108 108 women were randomized, and about 7% discontinued for the same reasons. I should say they, they actually do talk about in the appendix why some women 
were randomized but didn't get the infusion it had to do with the fact that there was a delay built in mm-hmm. between the time of randomization and the time at which the infusion occurred and so women could change their mind right right the group consisted of um 62 percent of the women were white and most had depression onset postpartum versus the um, the onset during the third trimester so at s- 60 hour well after 60 hours at 72 hours in study one, they found that there was a mean reduction in HAMD score by about 19 and a half points in the low dose group, about 17.7 points decrease in the high dose group, and about a 14 point decrease in the placebo group, giving a mean difference between the high dose, low dose group, and placebo of a 5.5 point decrease. And in the high-dose group, it was a 3.7-point decrease. And this difference occurred at 24 hours. Uh, There were slightly different numbers, but it also persisted at 48 hours and persisted till day 7. 94%, the authors state, did not relapse with depression when they were visited at 30 days. And it was extremely well tolerated. There didn't seem to be any bad effects other than a little bit of reported headache, dizziness, and somnolence. I think one of the one of the, the notable things, and again, we're, the, the, our listeners can't see this if, unless they look up the article. But um, one of the notable things in the figures is the degree. I mean, it's it's sort of graphic to see the degree of fall in the depression scores in the two groups, the high and the low dose, but also in the placebo group. There's a, there's a fairly large decrease from the, in the score obtained at baseline and the first and the 72-hour evaluation. And what's interesting about that is that you can go back to two other episodes where we've talked about antidepressants, and we've mentioned the exact same thing. Right. right? In every study we've looked at, which was a trial of antidepressants, all groups decline in their severity scores after being enrolled in the study. And so, Chris, I know you might call that the placebo effect. I think that's regression to the mean. But either way you look at it, there is... Or it's just the natural you know, evolution of the disease, too. Or the, whatever whatever you want to call it. There is a significant proportion of the population that is getting better in the absence of treatment. Right. Chris, so Chris, what's your, what, what's your take on this study? Well, I think this was very interesting that they, they started with a, a very different sort of biological pathophysiological model for how this drug intervention might work. Um, and Donna, I thought you said this really well, that like we, we don't really understand the, the neurochemistry very well of how like SSRIs, Prozac-like drugs work right. or how the tricyclics worked. We, we sort of imagine that they work in a sort of an empirical way, but it's, it seems always rather circular logic, right? Mm-hmm. That we know these are important neurotransmitters in the brain, and we know that we can adjust them in different ways. What exactly that means to these feedback loops is very hand-wavy mm-hmm. at the end of the day, and we mm-hmm. don't really understand how changing the uptake levels of serotonin is going to affect this or is going to affect that. But here, it, it felt like this was a much more specific, you know, uh, approach to, uh, to to solve the problem, starting with the epidemiologic observation that progesterone, you know, progesterone is a, you know, is a is a, an essential horm- hormone for maintaining the patency of the pregnancy, and it, its concentrations rise throughout pregnancy, and as soon as the baby is delivered, the progesterone levels fall, and so this drug, as Don said, is a metabolite of that, and so it's 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 part of the the degradation pathway naturally of progesterone. 
And then in the mice studies, we see that there's this inverse relationship that is, you mm-hmm. know, the, 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 as the allopregnanolone levels plummet, the postpartum mice often depressed. become depressed. <laughs> and how you measure that in the I mice. I have no idea. I don't know exactly what, how one measures this in a mouse, but I imagine their behavioral things that one observes in a mouse that you would sort of say is the same. So they... they, Lack of appetite. Right. I mean, we had anxiety scores for cats. Why can't we have depression scores for mice? Exactly. And apparently they do. So, you know, we should look into that in a future pod. But so... And and the the other uh, sort of key inference here is that this allopregnanolone compound interacts with the GABA receptor, the gamma aminobutyric acid receptor in the brain, which is the same drug, the same receptor that drugs like Valium interact with. So it's, it's this, you know, it's an, and it's a, it's a distinct pathway from the serotonin, the norepinephrine dopamine pathways that are the target of traditional antidepressants. So I thought all of that was really quite interesting and, you know, in, in some ways a game changer because there, there, this is sort of a reminder that depression is this very heterogeneous set of subconditions that may have entirely different pathophysiological loops. And, and so it, it kind of like in a, in a weird backhand way points you, you know, to the difficulty in, in studying major depressive disorder with drugs like, like Prozac, because you don't really know which pathway is involved in this particular kind of depression or if there are multiple pathways or not. You don't really understand what's going inside the patient's brain at a chemical level. So I thought all that was quite interesting. Now, with all of that said, this is a tremendously inconvenient way of, treat, of treating depression, to have hospitalized women and put them on a continuous IV drip for multiple days and charge them $34,000 for this. And, and the, separate them from the child. And separate so. them from the child. And they, they have to stop breastfeeding during this because, you know, the, the, the steroid hormone is going to cross... The, presumably across into the, into the mm. breast milk and have effects on the child that may be not good for the child's endocrine function. And so this is, this is sort of a, an intriguing and yet in some ways not yet practical way of dealing with it, though it does point in a direction that's, that's intriguing. With all that said, I was struck by on an absolute scale mm-hmm. how relatively impotent it was, you know, that the, it, it's very much like that meta-analysis we did a couple uh, episodes ago where, where, you know, 50% of people in antidepressants or something close to 50% will get better. And of that 40% is regression to the mean or the placebo effect, whatever you want to call it. And it's only the remaining 10% that is actually due to the compound. And we're in a very similar situation here where there's a, a, a on average, like a 12, 13 point drop in the HAMD score. Whatever that whatever means. means. And, you know, the, 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 Allopregnanolone, the brixanolone drug group, gets another three points on that. Yeah, maybe four. Yeah. Yep. So it's 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 not a it's not a like, earth shattering. Not earth shattering. Yeah. The difference. Yeah. It is intriguing and and maybe relevant because if if these different pathophysiological pathways are really important, and if if the postpartum depression is enriched for this particular steroid-driven GABA receptor pathway, then finally we have a treatment that identifies that. But one wonders, given the relative impotence of this, mm. how many of the patients in this group mm. actually had the GABA-mediated pregnanolone-dependent pathway mm. as opposed to Mm-hmm. Run-of-the-mill depression due mm-hmm. to norepinephrine or serotonin, and how you would separate that, or being exhausted, or being exhausted. I mean, there there, there are so right. many factors right. going in here yeah. that even though we're sort of like, I feel like we're moving in the right direction pathophysiologically and, and in terms of specificity, still it was kind of unsatisfying. That was my take on it. Yeah, 
I, I and I and I, I I share your some of your concerns. I mean, so I have a note in my um, my notes page that I kind of keep from episode to episode that always sort of starts off with my first thing is what is my what's my prior on these things? You yeah. know, do I think before I ever read the study that this is going to work? And I have to admit, I go in to a study like this with some skepticism for two reasons. The first is based on what we have been learning through this podcast, and I I, I want to fully admit to the fact that I'm not an expert here in depression in any way, but I have some some skepticism about the the literature around antidepressants in general because what we have seen so far has been underwhelming. I don't know how to dis- yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair way to to describe it. That 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 we it's not that we don't seem to see apparent effects. It's that those effects maybe could be explained by other things, or to the extent that there are effects, they are quite small when you actually uh, account for everything else that's going on. Secondly, um, and I'm just being upfront about this, you know, this is funded by a company. The researchers received a grant from the company, but I, whenever there is a product that is of you know, for commercial viability, I immediately just, just that, that I get a bit skeptical mm-hmm. that it's, mm-hmm. it's going to be a real finding just because of that. And I don't mean to, that's just a, across the board, I do that. I don't mean to imply that they have done anything wrong in any way by accepting this money or that they did anything intentionally wrong in their design. But so I start off there. Then I read the study and, you know, I'm, I'm struck by a couple of things. One is, I don't think we, the three of us, understand this HAMD score very well. No. But my my take on it seems to be that there's a lot of variability, that it is hard to actually diagnose depression and, and get the right levels. And so you're already starting off from a place where the condition that you are trying to improve, which is, by the way, the same score that you're going to use to determine whether or not it's gotten better, is not a, is not a perfect measure. Obviously, nothing is a perfect measure, but I think this one... You know, it seems to have some limitations. Then I look at you know the way the study was powered. So this is a this is a small study, even they though it's a phase about, three what? trial. Interestingly, phase three trial, very small, fifty, roughly fifty per arm, and they, it was a three arm trial. So you've got you know only fifty per arm over three groups. The study was powered, from what I can tell, based on based on a difference of nine. So the study was designed to be able to detect a nine-unit a nine difference in reduction. At least I think that was as opposed to a nine-unit reduction per group. I think it's the actual difference between groups. And what they actually found was only a, a five-unit in the low-dose group and a 3.7-unit drop in the high-dose group compared to the placebo. So... Immediately, that makes me think, okay, if you powered it on nine, that makes me think you thought nine was a clinically meaningful hmm. number. You only observed 3.75, maybe, and also unclear to me why the bigger effect, although you could argue these are the same effect, why the bigger effect is in the low-dose group. Yeah, I had a problem with that. And then finally, my, my, my last thing is there there is a fair bit of lost follow-up in the study. And so when you already have... Uh, and by the way, differential loss follow-up. So you have higher loss follow-up in the brixanolone groups, presumably because there are some side effects associated with uh, the treatment. It's not, I don't mean to imply that there's massive loss follow-up, but I think it was, what, about 18%? Mm. In study and one. Differential, differential between arms. 
that just you know just has me worried. So I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sold on this. Yeah, and and, and it's also worth noting that the the, the duration of follow up was only a month. So to have twenty percent attrition right. in one month is 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 not. You know that's not terribly impressive. You know we 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 expect twenty percent attrition in our cohort studies at a year. Yep. You know. Yeah. No. A fair, I think I think a fair bit of that uh, attrition is actually. Oh, I was going to say it's before they initiated the medication, but I don't actually think that's true because I think they excluded those because they said they use a. They actually, you 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 said Don, they used an attention to treat. They used a modified attention right. to treat in which they excluded those who didn't have any follow up. Mm-hmm. You know. Those who didn't have any follow up may have been just like those who did, but it's you know it's not something we can we can really say. Yeah, can I add one? And I did look up eighteen percent lost follow up. Can I add add one more thing about the uh, a limitation of the study? Is that phase three trials generally serve two purposes? One is to provide definitive evidence of efficacy. The other one is to provide a large amount of safety data. And so I would say on the former, they provided modest to strong evidence of efficacy. But like your points, are not, you know, are well taken that they, they were aiming for an eight point difference. They got around a four and a half, five point difference. But in terms of safety, they have learned very little from 150 people. I mean, almost by definition, there's very little you could learn from 150 people. Right. And what they learned is that a lot of people who received the brixanolone in, you know, in, injection became sleepy, which is not surprising because it stimulates the GABA receptor right. and acts in some way like, like a benzodiazepine would or alcohol would. It's, it's a somnolent. Mm. So I, I, I worry, given the vulnerability of the postpartum pregnant population, not as vulnerable, of course, as the pregnant population, but still they're breastfeeding uh, at higher, you know, fairly high rates, that we have vast amounts of unlearned information about the true safety. Uh, and I guess I would say particularly the cardiovascular safety of, of uh, you know, of a steroid drug like this. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. And I, I, I I guess I'm a little surprised the be, FDA signed off on it without more definitive evidence. Well, so so you so you we went back to the the issue of 50 per arm. So one of the things that it seems to me, and this is remember every just about every uh, depression study we've looked at have been small numbers, and I think the reason for that is you you're taking advantage of the fact that you have a continuous outcome measure with presumably a reasonable uh, reasonably low standard deviation. And you have a baseline measure that you're comparing it to, so you can you can limit some of the the variation that drives down your your sample size, which is great and something that we should we should take advantage of. Except that when you think about you know the the beauty and the benefits of the randomized trial, so much of that comes from the law of large numbers in creating balanced populations, and so you are taking advantage of the smaller si- sample size when it comes to power, but you don't necessarily get all the benefits in terms of uh, creating exchangeable populations. And if you look at the the baseline tables, they're not, you know, what you would expect to see from a large randomized trial. Mm-hmm. You have, mm-hmm. you know, imbalances in some of the, the, the population characteristics. Most of them actually seem pretty good, but uh, I think there was differences in the... Um, the ethnicity, uh, other things that you just, you know, you wouldn't expect to see in a large randomized trial. And I think that, you know, does, again, I'm, I'm uncomfortable trying to, trying to make a strong conclusion based on only 50 people per arm. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. Particularly in terms of, of the safety signals, which, you know, obviously they're completely underpowered for. Okay. So I was a little, uh, yeah, I was a little, I was a little curious why they, they, put this system in, in terms of an outside quality control rater of the rater, and that 
they they uh, they allowed the primary rater to veto the secondary rater's evaluation if it if it was discordant with the on-site rater's evaluation. That just seemed like it was a little odd and is kind of a situation that's ripe for manipulation. And mm-hmm. that, that gave me a little bit of pause. Hmm. Who, who will police the police? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it's it interesting was probably done while they I, were still blinded, but still, it, it made me a little uneasy. Yeah, it's interesting you said that because I was curious as to why you mentioned that detail when you were going through your your review because it seemed to me like a, a, a level of detail we didn't need. Yeah. But now I see yeah. it. It's because it's, it's something that raised, uh, raised concern for yeah. you. Chris, any, any last thoughts before we move on? Mm, I was a, a little surprised that there wasn't more of a dose response. There was an actual yeah. reverse dose response, yeah, in fact. Yeah, the, the 90 did not perform better than the 60, in no. fact, the converse, yeah, which exactly. seems to sort of fly in the face of the biological model of how this should work. It could. I mean, so, so one, one hypothesis you could, I suppose, throw at that is that the higher dose is associated with more side effects that would cause you to drop out of the study because there is more. there was more, if I understood correctly, there's more dropout the higher the dose. Yeah. But or I a, still think that's an unlikely explanation because the dropout wasn't that or high. Or there's a plateau effect. I mean, we don't know we don't know what the deficit is, how much was provided, how much was achieved in, in terms of replacement therapy in comparison to what the normal, you know, circulating levels are. So it's 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 hard to it's hard to understand that. And and the last criticism I want to level of the level at this is is that in all of the other depression studies we've reviewed so far, the we have criticized the, sh- the relatively brief length of follow-up, right? You know, and we've been upset about like six months or a year as being like, you know, this is a, this is a short period of time. This only went out to thirty days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't. I, I have to admit, I don't know postpartum depression well enough to know how long it would typically last. To well, know whether that's yeah, any... one would think that it wouldn't last as long as sort of organic um, depression yeah. and the, not in the setting of shifting so I, I, hormones. I thought that like was this. may have been part of the reason, but anyway. Yeah. Right. Okay. So. So remember several episodes back, there was a uh, there was a, a, an article that reviewed a bunch of the studies in the psych literature, and then they had they set up a gambling market. Oh yes, that was very a interesting market uh-huh. to try and see what would replicate. So if you had to put money down on this replicating, how much <laughs> money would you would you would you put a lot of money down? No, a little money down. Or I no put money less down? than sixty six dollars I earned in, in, for the NCAA <laughs> brackets. Okay, wow. so Don had to bring that up. <laughs> okay, Don is quite proud of right. himself. Right. He won. He won second place in the college basketball pool in the office. Quite proud. I of myself. I think I came in last. Frankly, quite proud of myself. Chris doesn't even play anymore because he doesn't know what basketball I is. I don't really. But I think Duke won. No. Right. No. There was some Virginia. bad call and Duke won. Beat beat Villanova there was a bad or something. Call no. And, no. No. Yes, there was. But that was. Anyway, uh, so would you would you put anybody down on this one replicating? Ah. Uh, I don't know. It seemed I'm. I, I, I don't know. I'm. I'm not. I'm underwhelmed. I have to confess. I'm underwhelmed. I. I, I keep yeah. looking at their figure, which the, the the our poor listeners can't see, but th- like the striking improvements in the placebo arm, and the relatively modest extra improvements in the drug arm, and and, yeah. and and as as I recall, normal saline is a lot cheaper than brixanolone and is almost as good according to this graph. $34,000 cheaper, is that what you're saying? I'm saying exactly that. Like, you know, once again, we're spending a lot of money for moderate benefit over over salt water in this case. 
Yeah, I mean, if it if it was if it turns out to be a real benefit, I can't I can't make any judgment as to whether or not that's worth it. I mean, this is a it's a real severe condition, and I I really wanted this one to to be true. So I, I'm not I won't comment on that, but I will agree with you that it, it appears to be a small effect at most. So par- parenthetically, so. while we while you were Don was doing his intro, I was looking up the psychometric properties of of the HamD scale. It's on a, it's on a zero to fifty scale. Mm-hmm. And zero to seven is considered to be not depressed, and then above seven is somewhat depressed. And when you get up to around twenty, you're moderately to severely depressed. And so you can go all the way up to fifty. And and so in the first trial, it was twenty six or above, and then mm-hmm. the second one is twenty to twenty five. Mm-hmm. So it would be the moderately to severe rather than the potentially very severe. So yeah. we're, we're thinking about like what does a five point change on a fifty point scale mean? Mm. And and I'm not sure I'm entirely clear now that I've seen that zero to seven is normal. So I guess. It's five less, points could be quite a significant difference because it could go from two to yeah, you know three to three to eight. But you know, again, we're dichotomizing this continuous variable. In yeah, I don't know. All right, so let's uh, let's move on. Before we do, I just want to point out. So this is uh, this was a Lancet article, right? Yes. Lancet? Yep. Unlike our New England Journal of Medicine articles, the introduction was really long. Eleven eleven hundred words. Yeah. So this one was really long. They took it. You know, they they gave quite a Quite an explanation of what they were trying to do, anyway, or justification for what they were trying to do. So let's let's uh, let's move on to segment two, sure. in which we're going to talk about statistical pitfalls in personalized medicine. So this came to us from a post on Twitter, which I I had read the article before, but there, this was a comment in the journal Nature by Stevenson entitled "Statistical Pitfalls in of Personalized Medicine." It came out in November of 2018, and in it, he makes the argument that we. I should say this is a little bit of my interpretation of the argument that he's making, but that we're we're likely in some ways overselling things when we find when we set when we find no effect of some intervention like a drug, but then we we say well maybe or 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 a modest effect, but then we say well maybe there is some subset of the population within which there's a large effect, but we're only seeing a small effect overall because we're averaging. This, this small population together with the, the large population that, that wouldn't be affected. And this issue came up for us, uh, I think it was two episodes ago when we talked about, uh, once again, talked about MMR and uh-huh. autism, which there is no relationship between. But, but the study was done partly because they had been criticized in their previous work for not identifying whether there were subsets of the population that might be particularly vulnerable to autism in which mm-hmm. the MMR vaccine might have an impact. So then they looked at that in their second study and again found Nothing. no effect. Yep. But that's the that is the argument that you often will hear people make. And that's, you know, largely the crux of personalized medicine. It says we are going to try and find the characteristics of people that are responders project that they will do best. They will be responders to specific drugs. And we can identify who's going to do well with a particular drug because right now, you know, when like, for example, if you look at the uh, depression, if you, if you buy the results of the previous study, you know, we don't, we don't really know who the responders are and who the non-responders are because there will be so many people who will respond in the absence of treatment. Hence the powerful, you know, placebo effect. Where the powerful can affect in the control arm, we should say. Yeah. And so he says, so, so to quote him, there's no reason to think that a drug that shows itself to be marginally effective in a general population is simply in want of an appropriate subpopulation in which it will perform spectacularly. Now, he's, he clarifies here, he says, I'm not talking about research often in cancer that defines subpopulation of patients in advance. 
In that scenario, the aim is to test prospectively whether a particular drug works better or worse in people, say, whose cancer cells have a specific genetic deficit, a biomarker such as HER2 mutation in breast cancer or the uh, BCR ABL fusion <laughs> or, gene. Or the, the, the um, pembrolizumab paper that we reviewed about, you know, a blast yeah. sometime last year. Yeah, so there are certainly there are certainly cases where you would specifically be looking for this. But he says, what I take issue with is the de facto assumption often made in studies of chronic diseases, such as migraine and asthma. And I would put depression Absolutely. in here, that the differential response to a drug is consistent for each individual, predictable, and based on some stable property, such as a yet-to-be-discovered genetic variant. Yeah. So what... I mean, what, what do you make of this argument, guys? I think I think it's it, it's sort of the same argument that is leveled at large studies that have subgroup analyses where you're trying to fish for um, sort of strong correlations, try to find out what what portion of that population has most of the uh, most of the effect that you're seeing across the entire population. Are there certain certain characteristics? And I think that's. I think that's misguided. I think it's 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 generally um, something that can at best be considered hypothesis generating, and is, you know, when it is put forward as a strong correlation, I I think it's misleading, and I think that that's basically what he's he's saying here. Yeah, I I totally agree. The, the depression is, is such a a great example of mm. this, right? Mm. Because if we say like. You know, there's a serotonin pathway that leads to depression. There's a dopamine pathway. There's a norepinephrine pathway. And, and now it turns out that there's a, a GABA pathway, right. a progesterone pathway. And you can imagine that in any individual at any given time, that patient may be depressed because of one of those four pathways. And it might not be the same one each time. And so there's a certain, like, you know, you, you give Prozac. And it turns out that this was a norepinephrine pathway and it doesn't work so well. And so you think, okay, this is a patient who doesn't respond to Prozac because right. of their genetics. But the next time they have a serotonin-dependent depression right. and, and then it, it works really well, right. hypothetically. And so, you know, if you had repeated the experiment, you might have found a totally different result. And is that because the, there's a certain degree of randomness here or is it because the disease is changing here or, or what? And, and the truth is most of the time we, we can never know actually what is going on and whether it's, re, it's a repeatable phenomenon it's, that it, they're being treated for. It's similar to the, you know, to the riff we went on with the Alzheimer's about, about how Alzheimer's yeah. disease is diagnosed essentially clinically and it really could be comprised of a whole host of different pathologies in the brain, each one of which has a different different etiology and pathophysiology, and therefore will be will be made better by different drugs or different right. interventions. But uh, wait, 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 wait! I'm confused, Don. So, but it sounds to me like then what you're saying is each one is different, and therefore there could be a personalized treatment. No, you're no, not saying no, that. No, no. I mean, it's it, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a, a quite sort of heterogeneous group of individuals. So there's a yeah. lot of misclassification of, of, of individuals in that. And, and, and it's, 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 you know, it's, maybe it's not a perfect example because what we're really dealing with in that, in that instance is not just one disease. We're, right. we're, we're putting a whole bunch right. of different diseases in the pot and saying, does this intervention work on these all sorts of different diseases? And of course, we're not going to find... And the problem is we can't dis distinguish those diseases. Correct. And so it's always a bit of like, we're, we're, we're just rolling the dice and hoping that our intervention happens to match the pathology. In the same way with this paper, with the, with the depression, because as you pointed out earlier, Chris, it could be that this is truly postpartum depression or it could be another pathway that's causing exactly. this. Yeah. Right. Uh, there, there is one an exception, though, that Don and I are both really familiar with in terms of, of where precision personalized medicine is currently used already and has been for decades, 
which is clinical infectious disease, mm-hmm. where we match the drug to the bug, mm-hmm. and we're we're basing our therapy specifically on the known, you know. Pathogen. general pattern of sensitivities of classes of bacteria and then backed up by specific information about this strain of bacteria's sensitivity to amoxicillin versus piperacillin versus erythromycin, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so we do do that. And of mm-hmm. course, we the entire field of infectious disease is predicated on the assumption that matching the drug to the bug matters, right. which it, it does. Sure. I mean, we, we like to believe that. It, <laughs> it's, it's it seems better. to in our experience. Yeah. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise so, we're pretty useless. Or we're, we should just go home uh, right. and Find give another, everyone Z-Packs. <laughs> so. And I think that's a, it's a good example. I mean, it's a very good example. But the question is, does that apply to right. cancer? Does that apply to... And so more and more it is applying to cancer, right? That That's why the pembrolizumab thing was such a big deal to us and why we were so attacked. Because here was a drug that was licensed specifically for a mutation regardless of the tumor. Uh. It was based on the, the, the individualized mechanism. But that is the exception rather than the rule mm-hmm. in clinical medicine. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I feel like, you know... Back when I was a resident, they talked a lot about ACE inhibitors versus calcium channel blockers for African-Americans with hypertension because the ACE inhibitors tend to not work as well as the calcium channel blockers. And so there was like sort of on a very broad population level, some evidence that these two drug pathways. Some. 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 some, Right. Some. But it was relatively modest. Um, But since then, we've got ahead of our skis here. So so I think that. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree, Don. I think you kind of nailed it when you said nailed that it. if you know, let's say we didn't have a hypothesis ahead of time that there should be some subset of the population within which there is an increased effect, then anything that we generate out of a out of a research study should be considered hypothesis generating. And I agree with that. I mean, I I don't think we want to not learn from data. So if we have data available to us. And we can, you know, we can do these sub analyses. I think we should we should be doing them to see if there are these subsets of the population. But I I would wholeheartedly agree with you, Don, that we don't want to make too much of these. But 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 to go back to to the point about precision medicine and and you know, is is this just a limit though of where we are now? I mean, is it we just don't have precision treatments available to us at the moment, but sometime in the future we will understand things better? Or is this really a case of, it's just not possible? Who knows? It sure depends. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I wonder about this Mm -hmm. because I think that this is is certainly where a huge amount of time and effort is being put in medicine and medical research. And it seems to me we may be doing this too soon. You know, let me pose... I may be wrong about that. I mean, I may may be proven totally wrong. I've been proven wrong. I I also once said that I thought the internet was the dumbest idea ever. So, you know, (laughs) take my opinions for what they were. I think you were right. Let me me pose a question. Given the fact that we have this posture based on the fact that there is a somewhat limited amount of data to be able to look at these associations and these sub-associations and these sub-correlations, is this not what artificial intelligence is intended to actually accomplish? If, If we had a sufficiently large data set with a sufficiently well characterized subgroups of individuals, doesn't artificial intelligence basically look, learn to look for those patterns Mm -hmm. and those associations. And it's the law of large numbers, as you said before, Matt, that theoretically one could be able to do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't mean to be contrary here, but it is. 
No, I actually do think this is true. I think this is where we're headed. I'm only saying that I don't know where I don't know that we're there yet. Uh, it, it, artificial intelligence can only process the information right. it has available to it, and I don't think we have the information. And it has to be yet. very, very large numbers. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. I suppose, or or really, really detailed information mm. on. But of course, the, the, as, as you get into the large anyway. numbers, you you lose control over what it is that the AI is is doing, right? Yep. So, yep. Okay. Well, uh, so we didn't solve that one. I had hoped we would, but uh, we failed you guys once again. But let's move on to our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing. So I've decided that the amazing and amusing no longer needs any intro whatsoever. So we're just <laughs> we going to get right to dive it. Dive in. Chris, what do you got for us? You go first. Well, this time. you know, I'm sure you guys all saw the very exciting news about the gigantic black hole photograph oh, yeah, that that's was in the so center cool. of our galaxy in the constellation so of Sagittarius cool. that weighs 200 billion suns worth of mass and is awesome. slowly sucking up solar systems and suns at a voracious rate and will eventually destroy our entire galaxy, including us. <laughs> I thought that this was like, this was a really important well, one. I was well, going to go I'm for it. Sad. And then I, I came across another paper that was even more important, a paper that, you know, because I think that the, the galactic destruction and the complete annihilation that's, of all life Life, as we know important. it, would be important. But th- that is probably only important to maybe a couple hundred thousand people on the planet, maybe a few million at best when you get right down to it. And tomorrow, no one will care. Right. But there is something that people are really interested in, Drum which, roll. Is, which is, can cats learn their names? <laughs> and that's what I'm going to talk ah, about today, is can oh cats God. learn their names? Stuff. And yeah. I'll tell you, they can. But these guys had to prove it, and they published it in Nature. This is a great study. It's called <laughs> Domestic Cats, Felis Catus, Discriminate Their Names from Other Words by Saito and colleagues in this month's NatureCom Scientific Reports. <laughs> I, uh, who funded, who funded I have this? To say, who funded this? I have to say, I almost brought the same really? I didn't, I it's a great this paper. One. Yeah. It's a great paper. Oh, it's a great, so great, we, great we know study. that dogs know their names. Yeah. Like, it's so obvious. Yeah. Yeah, but, but there are 600 million cat owners on this planet. But Did you how, know that? How would you know if a cat knew its ah, name? You have to do an experiment. Cats won't respond to you right, no matter the what. Cats, you know, I, have, I have these tea towels at home care. that are great. They're like the dog tea towels and the cat tea towels. And on the dog tea towel, you have like fetch and roll over and play dead and beg and, you know, sit and wag. And each, and each has got a little picture of a dog doing exactly that thing. And then you have the cat tea towel with all the same commands like sit, roll over, dig. And the cats are just sitting there. <laughs> Paying no attention yep. at all to they whatever you tell care. them. So you might very well they assume that the cats do not recognize language. But they, but cat... Cat owners so, think passionately this is not true. What'd they do? What'd they do? So they did an experiment where they got cats and cat owners, and they would read them a series of words that initially, this was the first experiment, they would say like, this was all in Japanese, So I, I'll, but I'll say it in English. They would say like, fish, dog, bunny, you know, chocolate. Fluffy. Mittens. <laughs> and right. the mittens, right? And so the, the purpose of the first four words was to sort of like control for the cat's attention just to any noise. Uh, like, oh, my master is saying something. And so, you know, predictably, for uh, the first word, they would prick up uh, their ears okay. and they'd listen. Hang on, hang on, hang on. A cat does not think of a person as its master. <laughs> True, good point. As the per- <laughs> its feeder, as its feeder and, uh, and you know, it's tummy warmer and scratching post. Yeah. <laughs> so they would give these four control words first that all had to have the same number of syllables and they would say them in a monotone so there was no emotional inflection. And then they would say the cat's name. And then they had this cat rating, it's like attention rating scale, which which was just, you have to, the rubric is a great 
Because it's not like dogs, where the dog is like, woof, 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 and looks right at you and like gets really excited. With and cats, it's, it's subtle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the cats, hit us, hit us. They have the <laughs> ear twitches, head moves slightly, <laughs> looks at you, tail twitches, oh. and maybe gets up and moves. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> that was, that's the scale. That was the scale. Because we're not looking for big effects here with the cats. We're just looking for any acknowledgement <laughs> that it heard you... At all. <laughs> so they did this experiment, and sure enough, the cats preferentially respond to their names. Come on. So when you get to Fluffy, they're like, what? You know, they don't move, but they're like, yeah. So they, they <laughs> you like, said my name. I heard you say my name. What's up? So then they did it again, like looking at like people who had multiple cats, and they wanted to see if like in a house with like five cats, will each of the cats recognize its name as opposed to all the names? Because you can imagine like when you're feeding the cat, you go ting, ting, ting on the can, you say, come here, fluffy bunny, you know, honey, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. name of ex-husband, and you know, and, and then they all come running. And you don't know if it's because they all like seeing all the other cats running and they're running because it's dinner time or because they right. heard their names. So what they do? And so they did the same thing where they would like uh -huh. do the controls using the other cats' names. In front of all the cats? In front of one cat at a time. Uh -huh. And then see when they finally got to the actual cat's name, whether the cat would respond to its name preferentially, which it did. So they, they again, they, they know their names. But then they did the same experiment in a, in a cat cafe. You know what a cat cafe is? It's I do like not. these people, it's like people who feel depressed and love cats and they go to a cat cafe and there's like cats everywhere. Oh, right, right, and they right, go right. and drink coffee and, right. and tea and eat crumpets and pat the cats. And the cats are like so used to people like saying yeah, yeah. Fluffy Bunny when it's not Fluffy and Bunny, it's the other cat's name, right? And so they just like, they want to know in that milieu, will the cats respond to their names? And the answer is kind of no, they don't really. The cats have sort of forgotten their names and they're just like, whatever. They're ignoring all the humans so all the time. So what happened? And then they did another experiment where they they wanted to see, well, what happens if, if someone else calls the cat's name other than the owner? Like, mm. is it contextual on the owner's voice plus the cat's name? Mm. And it turns out that even if Don calls my cat Jackson, Jackson will respond to Don more than it will if you say, like, it just like, happens to be the name brick. of my son. Right. But with all that said, the cats don't come running they twitch an ear no, they, look at you they turn their head yawn four degrees flick to their the tail left. twice <laughs> and maybe <laughs> roll over to face away from you <laughs> but reproducible so the bottom line of this critical scientific question is cats definitely do know their names they do not know that you're talking to them I, but they just choose to ignore you I, I, I so love the, that this I was published in nature <laughs> it was a very good study actually I thought it was quite clever uh. So good news or bad news, depending on your perspective. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that is that is really good news. I'm going to go second since mine follows in the line of uh, rationality. I would of of weird things that people are studying to try to find out about the animal kingdom. Except this one has to do with mosquitoes. Ooh. So this one was uh, sent in. Uh, they don't know their names, but this one was sent in to us by two of our listeners, actually. So, um, Ashley Holub and, and Hannah, you see, oh, hey, Hannah. both sent this, both sent this to us, uh, separately. And so I thought we would give them a, a, a shout out, but this was, um, this was making the rounds on Twitter. Neuroskeptic tweeted it out and it's just, I thought it was a really interesting study, uh, published in Acta Tropica 2019 by Dang and colleagues. The title of the study is the, elect the Electronic Song Scary Monsters and Nice Sprites Reduces Host Attack and Mating Success in the Dengue Vector 80s I have three students in my class who brought so, that to class. I, I, I have a class on global eradication of infectious diseases, and they brought that to class. This was a really popular paper. 
And it's really, I mean, it's a, it's, it doesn't need much explanation beyond the title. They, they essentially, what they did was they looked to see whether, because sound frequency is important in the flight and mating behaviors of mosquitoes, they looked to see whether uh, songs, whether music, and in particular this song, Scary Monsters and Nice Brights, and I don't, I couldn't actually access the, the study itself. So I don't know why they actually picked that song, but they picked, picked that particular song to see the impact that it would have on the behavior of mosquito in terms of foraging, host attacks, and sexual activities. And what they found was the occurrence of blood feeding activity was lower when the music was being played. There was less what? There was less less flight and less sex. Uh, reproduction. Less sex. Yeah, less 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 mosquito <laughs> sex when they would play. Did you the listen song. to the song? I have never heard oh, the song. Okay. No, we played it in class. Is it, is it the kind of song? It's, it's electronic it's, music. It is. It yeah. is almost like monotonic screeching for five minutes. And is it, huh? It, but is it is it the kind of song that you would think, boy? I bet mosquitoes wouldn't reproduce if this music. No, was this music, no it's the kind, kind of song music? where nothing would reproduce if you were playing that song. Yeah, so you do wonder, like yeah. you know, kind of this, like progressive would rock. This, <laughs> would this would this work? King Crimson right, kills right. kills all instincts it's, to reproduce. It's, it's not like the bossa nova. But I wonder if the mosquitoes would attack humans when you put that on. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are, there are many music choices that could have gone with. Um, mm. I would be interested to see the follow-up studies. But there you go. A great new avenue for malaria. We should reproduce this one. For malaria control. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All Dad, right. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave the animal kingdom and stick with humans. And uh, I'm going to talk about a paper that appeared in Medical Hypotheses in 2009 by George Steinhauser. And George Steinhauser was um, made the observation himself, as did his um, mates and his family, that there are certain individuals that collect navel lint mm. at a much no, there are not. at a much higher rate than other individuals. We're not talking about the navy, not oh, the navel. Oh, you mean rent, navel? Right, <laughs> lint. And so he. But, and when you say belly collect, buttons. belly buttons, you just mean you just mean that it collects, not as opposed to. I am a no, collector no, no, no. of. He was not. He he did not collect <laughs> other people's <laughs> button lint. However, he did. That's a Chris Gill, April twenty nineteen, <laughs> in a little test tube. <laughs> I'm telling you, he wanted he wanted to know what are the characteristics that 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 um, are associated with collecting lint. And what lint in and, and what lint consists of? Like any inniness, outiness. So, so he collected his own navel, and he calls it fluff. He doesn't call it lint. His own navel flip. Five hundred and three wow. pieces of navel fluff were collected for over a year, and he weighed each one of them, and then he analyzed the composition of them, Gross. and then he did a series of experiments with himself and other individuals, and determined that it's the presence of belly hair in a circular fashion, growing in a circular fashion around the belly button that is, is what induces the collection of lint. Why some people... It's like a so, pe so people who have more circumferential <laughs> hair around their navel tend to collect lint more than people who don't, which what is about, why men tend to have belly button lint more than women what do. What about being chubby? 
Oh. He didn't. He didn't specify that. Although he did experiments where he he shaved his own belly hair and <laughs> the lint didn't collect. And then he did a, he did an analysis of the composition of the of the lint and found that most of it was cellulose in nature. How about that? Meaning that it came from your undershirt. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. That is but fascinating. There were, all, there were also there was also a fairly large amount of. Lipids and cellular material, and how about ecto ectoparasites? No, <laughs> no he didn't look oh. for ectoparasites. But um, <laughs> oh, that is so. So, gross. did they use principal components analysis here? So, so <laughs> the most abundant mass was observed for the range of one point two to one point two nine milligrams per collection, and it's the amount of lint that you collect at the end of the day. The average value is 1.82, but there were a few that were massive, four milligrams of belly button lint. And he has a graph that he has here, which he has the count and the size of the various different belly button sizes. So there was was one out here that was nine milligrams. So what's the median? The median was 1.82 milligrams. Now um, I know. And 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 he he, he felt like <laughs> with goodness. his belly button, the maximum carrying capacity was uh, in the neighborhood of about eight to the nine milligrams of belly wow. button lint. The carry capacity of science wow. marches on. I it love is it. Important to know oh, these things. Thank yeah, it's not as important as a as a as a black hole, but yeah. almost. Yeah, similar. <laughs> Quite similar. Wow. Well, you've All wasted right, another well, 58 minutes of your life. You'll never get back. That is the end Go, go home and talk to your program. cat and see if it twitches it, its ear. Right. And, exactly. And, and, and if you've got any feedback and use on that this pinky, or any other episode. Uh, clean out your belly button. Or you want to tell us to really stop talking about belly button, you can tweet us at, <laughs> at PopHealthyX. Or you can tweet me at, at ProfMattFox or Chris at, at ID.Gill. Or Don at at Dethea One, or you can find us at the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali and Director of Lifelong Learning at BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. And we hope you will download our next episode. <laughs>